Well, in June 2012, Boston High School English teacher David McCullough Jr. gave a graduation speech just like thousands of other schools that year. But compared to the countless other remarks given by comedians, politicians, and journalists that year, uh, his stood out for its blunt four-message, four-word message, you may remember. He said, you are not special. Uh, the substance of his remarks came from growing concern about what he had been seeing over the last few years in his own school and classroom, in co- culture as at large, and in his own household. In his opinion, teenagers were suffering from inflated notions of themselves and regarded every opportunity as theirs for the asking, every accolade their due. The sentiment was, we're not superior, we're just special. Glowing successes they assume and therefore much happiness will naturally follow in this new cult of exceptionalism to be average, just a regular kid, for most an unavoidable statistical fact, is to be thought inferior. To be ordinary, then, is to be left behind. Now, McCall is no theologian, but I did resonate with part of his message because I believe we have missed the beauty of ordinary even in our churches today. We are always trying to be innovative and cutting edge, and yet the message of Jesus and the power of the gospel has not changed. As a result, we often miss the beautiful, ordinary simplicity of what the church is supposed to be. We have a way of complicating things and making church a little bit more complex than it needs to be, don't we? A few years ago, I read a book by a man named Michael Horton, It was called Ordinary, Sustainable Faith in a Radical, Restless World. Horton writes, your life was meant to be ordinary, not radical. Restless, epic, crazy, extreme. Every word that we read these days seems to call us to the the next big thing. The problem is that most of us end up disillusioned and disappointed, burnt out by restless anxieties and unrealistic expectations. We need a renewed, he, this is still Horton writing, we need a renewed appreciation for the commonplace ways in which God works, often in those mundane moments that are unplanned, unprogrammed, and unplugged. But if we're honest, we dislike that word ordinary, don't we? That's exactly, if you're like me, what I've spent much of my life trying to avoid. Nobody wants an ordinary life. Nobody wants an ordinary marriage. We certainly don't want ordinary children. And we don't want to attend an ordinary church where we just do ordinary things. But what does it really mean to be ordinary? You'll notice that the the title that I gave to the sermon today was Ordinary Christians. Well, Well, I looked up ordinary in the dictionary this past week, and do you know what I found there? The definition for ordinary is what is commonplace or standard. So ordinary is not something that is to be looked down on. Ordinary, then, we need to reclaim that word. It is to what is to be commonplace or standard. So in the realm of Christianity, or those of us who claim to know Jesus Christ, then ordinary becomes the standard. And I want to argue today, uh, even through our passage that we're going to look at, that we we need to take back that word ordinary. Stop looking at it as a negative thing, but rather something that God's calling us to. That's standard, and I'll flesh that out in our passage today. You see, God loves to use ordinary people. Not those who think they're special or better than others to advance his kingdom. 
People who are willing to faithfully follow his leading and to be bold in his witness, not those who are personality-driven and trying to build their own kingdom. Uh, not those who are prejudiced towards others, nor those who think more highly of themselves than others, but rather those who are obedient to God's call on their lives and have a passion to share the good news of Jesus Christ and the transforming power of the gospel with others. Uh, this morning we're back in our study of Acts that we picked up a couple weeks ago, and we're in the second half of chapter 11. Last week we heard about Peter being called on the carpet and we heard how he appropriately responded to the criticism of the Jerusalem church leaders and by responding appropriately he helped them to marvel at what God was doing in the spread of the gospel and the offer, the offer of salvation to the Gentiles. He also helped them to begin to rethink their prejudices, didn't they? About who was special and maybe who was ordinary and who the gospel was actually offered for. It was an amazing moment in church history. And that's where we pick up our story today. So if you have your Bible, if you turn to Acts chapter 11, we're going to pick up the second half, second half of chapter 11, starting in verse 19. Luke writes, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Now the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went on to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him back to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in those days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold of the Spirit that, or, I'm sorry, foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all of the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and of Saul. Here in verse 19 in chapter 11, uh, we find ourselves at a similar point in time as that of Acts chapter 8, verses 1 to 4. If you remember, it's been months now. If you go back to that time, we are taken back to a time in the persecution which arose on the account of Stephen. Remember, Stephen was stoned. And the scattering of the church from that point on. And in, Luke, or I'm sorry, in Acts chapter 8, verses 11 through 17, Luke has described the way in which the gospel was proclaimed and received in all of Judea and Samaria. When Luke now picks up the persecution here in chapter 11 and the scattering of the church and following, he does show to, to show the spread of the gospel to the Gentiles with the first major church being founded in this city of Antioch. Not only are the Gentiles now saved, but an entire Gentile city, Antioch, is impacted with the gospel, an impact which we will see will continue to grow long after the lives and ministries of men like Barnabas and of Saul. But don't miss this. This continues to, to really stick out to me. Once again, we see how God uses persecution and suffering to lead ordinary people to do amazing things for God 
if they're willing to trust him and to preach the gospel. And I, I don't pretend to understand why God chooses to use suffering and persecution to spread his gospel, but he does. I don't understand why he doesn't just allow there to be good things to happen to people and the gospel to be warmly received by the people that receive it, but he chooses to use different methods. And we need to trust him that his ways are best. We're reminded that God is completely sovereign over all things, even efforts to destroy the church, to kill Christians, and to stop the gospel. But what we continue to see is that his plans cannot be thwarted. And this is a theme that runs throughout Scripture, but specifically here in the book of Acts. And I marveled at it again today, is God's plans cannot be stopped. We're also introduced to the label Christian for the very first time here in the New Testament, as it's used to describe the disciples in Antioch. We tend to throw the word Christian around pretty loosely these days, don't we? Uh, we, we, we categorize people as Christians, and, and it's pretty a, a pretty broad stroke that we throw over that. Also, churches today that use that name Christian, I, I would beg to differ at times with the, with the word that they use there. But I think that we see some things in this passage that help to describe to us what a Christian is and should be and what a Christian church is and should like. And it begins with ordinary people who put their faith in an extraordinary God. You see, these are unsung heroes here in chapter 11, verses 19 to 30. We don't see any names here, do we? Nobody's name is recorded in this passage. No credit goes to any single person, but rather God. God gets the glory because he loves to use ordinary people, ordinary Christians, to do extraordinary things. So my question to us today is, what can we learn from these verses here in the second half of chapter 11? And really, I want to pose it in a question today with three points, and I'll, I'll give some context to each of them, and then we'll briefly look at them. And the question I have for us today here is, are we a body of believers that is ordinary? And we're going to look at, are we ordinary people? Are we full of ordinary leaders? And are we ordinary givers? And again, going back to what I said in the introduction, I want us to reclaim that word ordinary, not in a negative sense, but rather something God is calling us to, the standard moving forward of, it's not about us, it's about God. Now here we see the Jews in this passage show up to Antioch and they find people like them who speak a similar language. We saw that right away. They have a similar culture and they have similar traditions and they begin sharing the news of Jesus with them. It would be like if you went on a business trip to, let's say, Saudi Arabia or Hong Kong and, and you first thing you do, you get off the plane and you go find an expat community of English-speaking Americans that are just like you, right? Because that's comfortable, that's easy. They speak the same language. I go to them and I begin to share Jesus with them because I love Jesus and Jesus has changed my life and he's impacted me, he's transformed me and, and that's wonderful, right? We would applaud that. That's good. That's really good. We want that. But really, they were doing what was easy, right? I think about going on missions trips. The tendency when I go on a missions trip and I'm at the airport and I, or I, I show up with somebody and, and they're speaking English and I kind of gravitate to them, right? Because that's easy, right? Here I am in Nicaragua and, oh, right, you, you talk my language as well, right? Because that's easy, that's comfortable, and it's great, I want to tell those people about Jesus, they need Jesus too. But we see something happen in chapter, or I'm sorry, in verse 20, that's different. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene. Uh, Cyprus, if you're not familiar, is an island out on the Mediterranean. And Cyrene is actually where modern-day Libya is today. So some of these from Cyprus and Cyrene, they go to Antioch and they begin to speak to the Hellenists, the Greeks as well, the non-Jews. 
They cross some pretty significant ethno-linguistic boundaries. They go and speak with people who do not necessarily share the same heritage and the same culture, the same traditions, and the same mother tongue. Instead, they begin to share the good news of Jesus crossing these boundaries and these barriers. And when that happens, when they start getting outside of their comfort zone, you've got to remember, they're already disoriented from the persecution. They've been kicked out of, their home, or out of Jerusalem. Persecution has come. They've been spread out. They show up in Antioch, and they start sharing the gospel with people that aren't like them. They go outside the box. They talk to those who are different. And what happens? The hand of the Lord is on them. People get saved. Revival's happening in this place that you would least expect it from people from northern Africa and an island off the Mediterranean. Instead of gravitating to people that are just like them, they begin to share the gospel with people that are very much not like them. They take some risks. They step out of their comfort zone. In fact, and this mighty work that happens in Antioch and these people that come to Christ, it's because these folks, these men, these women, we don't know their names, were willing to put aside their prejudices and share the gospel. Not only their prejudices, but they had to put aside the prejudices of their leaders as well. Did you catch that? The Jerusalem leaders were prejudiced as well, and they had to look past that and say, you know what? God's calling us to something bigger. Now, Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. So basically, it's the Chicago of the Roman Empire, right? New York, Los Angeles, Chicago. And my understanding in the Roman Empire, it was Rome, Alexandria, Antioch. Antioch was a major urban center. It was uh, this huge city with, with Roman and Greek influence. But it's where the church started, was there in Antioch. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of them believed and put their faith and trust in him. The church ended up becoming one of the greatest mission-sending churches in the history of the world. But who started this church? See any names there listed? Who started it? We don't know. It was started by ordinary people that were willing to step out of their comfort zones and begin to share Jesus with people that didn't look, act, and speak like them. We don't see any names. We don't see any celebrity pastor names show up here. We see regular, ordinary people who ended up in Antioch, who had been scattered from their homes, displaced by persecution, and began sharing Jesus with people that looked very different to them. They began making disciples in Antioch where they were. And it became the greatest mission-sending church in all of history. And we don't even know their names. Now, I love this because this means that God wants to use us. God can use you and God can use me. God can use any of us if we are willing to make disciples. If you walk out of here with, with nothing else today, I hope you walk out with a renewed vision that God has called you where you are and God can use you to, to do amazing things. To see, the transform, um, to see transformation where you walk with him with the Spirit. We can be unleashed to make unique disciples, ordinary people, regular people. This is who we want to be here at Indian Creek as well, at Village Bible Church Indian Creek Campus. We're the body of Christ. We're people who have been transformed by Jesus. However, maybe you haven't yet. Maybe you're struggling with this right now and you're not even sure about this whole idea of who Jesus is, but, but we believe we're transformed by the power of Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit. And we desire to live this out in, in this community and the communities that you come from as well. God has called us to join him in his pursuit, his love for people, and to go out and share the gospel. And as people meet Jesus and they see who he is and they're transformed by him, then they too can become a part of this community. 
God's calling us here to be a part of this. That's what we see here. And, and point number one, are we a body of believers that are full of ordinary people that first are obedient to the Lord? I see in this first part of this passage, I see a bunch of people that are first and foremost obedient to God. They went, on, they went even beyond their leaders, right? Their leaders are kind of like concerned. They're talking to Peter and they're saying, hey, what's going on? Isn't the gospel just for us? And they were willing to step out of their comfort zones, to think outside the box and to share the gospel with people that didn't look like them. They obeyed God's call. We saw in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, to go and make disciples of who? All nations, not just people that look and talk and act and think like us. They were obedient first and foremost to God. Their priority was following God and stepping out of their comfort zones. Secondly, they were occupied with God's mission. Kind of goes hand in hand with obedience to God. Not only were they obedient in their persecution and their suffering to share the gospel, they were occupied with God's mission and they understood that God's mission wasn't just for a group of special people. It wasn't just a certain segment of Jewish people that were, that were able to have the gospel. They understood that God was calling for the gospel now to go out and to be available to everyone. And so they were willing, displaced from their homes in places that spoke a different language, to find people and share the gospel. I, we can't move too quickly past this. Was, this was radical. Okay, There was nothing in, our, in the way we define ordinary, nothing ordinary about this. But they were ordinary people filled with the Holy Spirit, ready to do great things for an extraordinary God. And finally, in that part, we also see that they were, making, uh, they were also making disciples as well. They were open-hearted in their relationships and their witness. They were obedient to God, they were occupied with God's mission, and they were open-hearted in their witness and their relationships. See, they understood that disciples needed to be made. They understood that there were people that were dying and going to hell and they wanted to share the good news of Jesus with them. And it didn't matter if they were a part of the same lineage, lived in the same area. We, we miss this a little bit today because we're much more of a melting pot now and it's a lot more acceptable for us to have relationships with people that look and act a little bit differently than us. Even though, let's be honest, I'm not sure we've come as far as we think we have in those regards. But we miss sometimes how big of a deal it was for Jews or for those that weren't a part of, you know, of the inner circle to go and to reach those who were different. This was radical. This was crazy. This was the first time this is really happening on, on this scale. And these men and women who will never know their names, this side of heaven, were open-hearted in their witness and in their relationships. And they crossed some boundaries that would have been pr a pretty huge deal back then. Bottom line, though, Ordinary people, just like you, just like me. God used them to advance his kingdom and to spread his gospel. But the story doesn't, doesn't end there. You see, there's, there's some chaos going on here in these middle verses as well. You know, church leaders hate when things get out of control, don't they? They don't like that, right? Pastor Phil here, all of a sudden you start, you know, we start seeing revival happen. It starts to make us a little uncomfortable as church leaders, if we're honest. Because we like to get our hands around things, right? We want to know, hey, you do this, and you do this, and you do this, and this is the way it's supposed to work. We like A plus B equals C. And so did the Jerusalem church leaders. But, you know, something's starting to go on. They're starting to get this word. The ears are hearing about this chaos, this craziness, this gospel stuff that's happening up in Antioch, and, and, and they don't know what's going on. And they decide that they need to do something about it, right? Because no one's directing it. 
No one's guiding it. No one's controlling it except the Holy Spirit. So the news of this chaos reaches the church in Jerusalem, and they decide to send Barnabas. Remember where we heard about Barnabas a few chapters ago? Back in the story of, of the end of chapter 4, beginning of chapter 5, the story of Ananias and Sapphira. If you recall, Barnabas was the one who came and donated a plot of land. You know, unprovoked, just said, here it is, use it. And then right after that, Ananias and Sapphira, probably seeing how people thought really well of Barnabas, they came in and they tried to donate some money too. But what did they have done? Held some back, right? Kept some for themselves and God struck them dead for their disobedience. But Barnabas was called a son of encouragement. He responded in a much different way. He donated his land. He was a leader now in the church of Jerusalem. And God had put him in a position of great influence. People listened to him. They followed him. They respected him. So Barnabas shows up, and when he sees what the grace of God had done, he says, hey, wait a minute. We need to stop this thing. We need to rein this in. Wait, wait, this is too much chaos going on, right? Is that what he said? No, not at all. Very much differently. He was glad, the Scripture says. So this chaotic thing's happening, and we're not exactly sure what God's doing, but he's doing some amazing things, and Barnabas, Barnabas is glad. Now, I don't know about you, but I know my reaction when things are chaotic, things aren't going the way that I think, things are going outside the box, they're not the way that, 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 that I kind of expected or I think that they should happen. I know that my reaction, I can have a tendency when God's doing something outside of the box or something that I'm not comfortable with, I can kind of feel skeptical. Kind of rain, to, well, hey, hold on, I, I don't know what's going on. This isn't what I thought was going to happen. This is how we're supposed, this is how we do things back in Jerusalem. This is how we do it at the mothership, Right? We do it differently. You're supposed to do it this way and this way, and then God will bless you. But things in Antioch, they're not following the roadmap. They're following the Holy Spirit, right? Things are happening in a way that, 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 that isn't easy uh, to understand. And I pray that that would be our response here at Village Bible. I pray that would be our response here at, at Indian Creek, is when we see God and the Holy Spirit doing something, because we're stepping out in faith, we're getting out of our comfort zone, we're obedient to God's mission, that things do start to get a little bit, in the right kind of way, a little bit chaotic, a little bit out of control, at least as we define control. And Barnabas, I hope I'll follow his example. You see, Barnabas realized that if God is working in their hearts, if God's working, then he's glad. And he was for it. And instead of squashing things and going, hey, I think if we create some committees and we come up with some guidelines and some policies, we might be able to get this thing kind of harnessed in, he blessed them. He encouraged them. And he said, boy, keep going. Because he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and faith. So he shows up and this thing's happening. And, uh, but Barnabas doesn't believe that it's done. He thinks God's still going. And because of his faithfulness, and the fact that he didn't believe it's finished, Barnabas is convinced that this is from the movement and the hand of God. And he says, let's keep going. Let's keep this thing going. So after Barnabas shows up, a great number of people are brought to the Lord. Huge amounts of people are getting saved. Mighty revival is happening because ordinary people are willing to follow an extraordinary God. Wouldn't it be great if we could have that same attitude as Barnabas? That maybe God is building a foundation for something new? Because that's exactly what was happening at the church at Antioch. Something new was happening that was going to change the world. And we were at a crossroads where we could either squash it or we could trust that God is in control and that God is doing a new thing. 
God was building a launching pad for the church to not rest in Antioch, but to absolutely explode both in Antioch and in the surrounding areas and to the uttermost parts of the world. What if God's doing that right now, but we're, we're too short-sighted to see it? What if God's trying to, you know, to start a revival right now that's going to have an impact in this area and beyond, but we're thinking small, right? We have a tendency to do that. Think real small. Put God in a box. God's wanting to blow the box up. Barnabas, though, realizes he needs help. He's there. He's seeing this happening. We're seeing dozens, thousands. Who know? I don't know. We don't give a number. We're seeing hordes of people come to know Christ. The church needs help. So he goes to Tarsus to look for who? Paul. Still Saul at this point. is going to be Paul soon, but he's looking for Paul slash Saul. Anybody else here find the irony of this? Remember what happened just a few chapters before? Jump back to verse 19. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution, that was Saul that started it, right? Though the persecution that has spread people to go outside of their comfort zone, to show up in Antioch, to create honestly like a megachurch there in the midst of this, even though it doesn't look like our megachurches today, was all because a man named Saul started it. So in a weird way, Saul actually launched out these people to start the church in Antioch against his will. I love this. I love that God is full of irony. That he takes Saul, who starts a persecution, to rid Jerusalem of Christians, and it only causes them to spread out and create something so much greater. And then what? He's been sitting around for a few years getting to know who this Jesus is, just waiting, and Barnabas goes and finds him and brings him back. You can't make this stuff up, okay? You cannot make up these stories. This is what would make a great movie, right? He goes down and he finds him. You know why? Because Barnabas realized that these people needed shepherding. As a leader, he understood that, that we need to walk alongside them and not just leave them. We need not to say, okay, they believe in Jesus, great, now let's move on. No, we need to walk with them and help them walk in, healthy, in, in a healthy, long-term way to make disciples and multiple disciples and invite other people to join in following the way of Jesus. And Barnabas knew he couldn't do it on his own. And they couldn't do it. They needed somebody else to help them in this journey, to grow in maturity, to walk alongside of them. So he went and found Paul slash Saul, and he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. This still blows my mind. It's amazing. Persecution, craziness, church being built up. Hey, let's go get the guy that started this thing that was persecuting. The only thing that came to my mind this week was thinking about like a guy like Hitler. Hitler starts this huge, massive genocide, right? He's killing millions and millions of people. And let's assume we don't have any... Uh, sign that this happened. Let's assume that he came to know Christ. Right? He had a kind of conversion experience. We came to know Christ, and now he's been hidden away for a few years, and he's learning all about this Jesus, and, and this huge church is, is taken up in, 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 the, in the, the country of, of Germany. And some guy shows up, let's call him Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You know, I'll just make up a name. Dietrich Bonhoeffer's there, and Dietrich says, we need help to disciple these people. And he goes and he finds this guy, and he brings this guy back named Adolf. Right? That's what's happening here. You can imagine there's a little bit of skepticism, right? But you know who they trusted? They trusted Barnabas. And they had seen and heard of what was happening, and they gave it a shot. Again, just another just thing that would be easy to gloss over today, but is remarkable to me to, to how they responded of welcoming him in to the church. 
The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Isn't that incredible? All these new beginnings all started by people we don't know, ordinary people that the Holy Spirit used in extraordinary ways. Saul and Paul, Barnabas, were convinced that they needed to walk alongside these people and show them what it means to be a disciple of Jesus and see them multiply in healthy ways, and they did. They committed, they were committed, and they stayed there an entire year to disciple these people. So I see in point number two, not only do we have ordinary people here, we have ordinary leaders who are explorers, exhorters, encouragers, I'll come back to these, and those who are not ego-driven. We see leaders like Paul and Barnabas and others who were first explorers. They were willing to come down. Barnabas was willing to come down, keep an open mind, and see what God was doing there. He didn't make any rush judgments. He didn't, he didn't predetermine, oh my goodness, this is crazy thing. I got to go down there and stop that. Barnabas was simply sent to go down and look, and he was glad. He was glad what the Lord was doing. Are we willing to explore before we make up our minds about things? To ask questions, to keep an open mind that God might be doing something? Yes, at times it needs to be, it needs, things might need to be reined in, but do we have an openness first to go, you know what, God, are, are you calling me to something? I think ordinary leaders, in all the best ways, they're explorers. We also see Barnabas go and explore and find Saul and bring him back. We want to go out and find people. They're also exhorters. They're challengers. You know, when Barnabas shows up and he sees this thing that God is doing, he doesn't stop it. He says, keep going. Keep going. Let's see more people come to know Christ. Let's see the gospel advance in ways we never even dreamed of. Now's not the time to stop and get comfortable. Let's do more. God, what else do you have for us? Let's go. Keep going. We have leaders in this church here today that are exhorting. I, I know we have some that are exhorting us to keep going, to not stop, to continue, to repent when we need to repent, to change course when we need to change course, to think outside our comfort zone, to think outside the box. They're also encouragers. Barnabas himself was called a man of encouragement. He was a discipler. He was an encourager. He was a shepherd. We see that. They didn't just show up. Awesome. Lots of people come to know Christ. We had a big crusade. Let's move on to the next church. No, they stayed for an entire year and discipled the people. That's what it means to encourage, is to live life with them, to get into the mess of, to get into the mess of life, to challenge them into their walk with Jesus, to be able to teach them about the gospel, to be able to show them truth, day after day after day after day, to get in their lives, to help them in their marriages, to help them think through theological issues. They were there. They were walking with them. They were exhorters. They were encouragers. And finally, they were not ego-driven. That's still probably the part that's just so remarkable to me about Barnabas. Barnabas was not out to build his own kingdom. Barnabas shows down. He's sent down. He could have easily taken the opportunity to say, hey, there's a good thing going on here. There's a little bit of wealth here. This is an urban center. This is a, this is a city that, that way, was way better off at that point than Jerusalem. I'm going to start a church right here. I'm going to build me a mega church. You know, I, I think a plane, a nice car, right? I'm going to have some nice clothes. I'm going to develop my own little following here. He doesn't do any of that, does he? First thing he does is he goes out and finds somebody else, Saul, who he knows is more gifted and able and called to come and help in this ministry. The humility of him is, is, is tremendous to me. We already talked about not knowing these other ordinary people. We don't know who they are. We don't know their names. We don't know where they come from. Okay, it wasn't about them. It was about Jesus. Same with Barnabas. He comes down. It wasn't about what he could do. It was about how could he gather people together and encourage the body there to go, to go even further. 
It's one of the many things I appreciate about Village Bible is it's not a church that's driven by a personality. There's not one person this church is about. You don't take a church and build a multi-site church that doesn't have video being streamed in of one guy, but rather have five different campuses, varying places, that all have live teachers and their own leadership and their own unique blend of people. You don't do that if you're trying to build your own kingdom. You do that because you have a heart to be able to reach unique places like the Shabinaw area, or in Aurora, or El Camino, or now Plano or Sugar Grove, and you say this is so much bigger than one person or a group of men and women. This is about Jesus. And I praise God for what he's doing, that he's given us ordinary leaders who are explorers, exhorters, encouragers, and not driven by ego. So we have ordinary people, we have ordinary leaders, and I also see here in this passage, and I close with this, we have some ordinary givers. The third thing we see here in this passage is ordinary people who impact the world through their giving. You see, during this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius, it says. Now, I, I love that. Luke, who wrote Acts, ins inserted this, parent, uh, uh, this par uh, um, little uh, parenthesis to show that it's true. Do you catch that? It just, it, it just validates that the Scripture is true. He's saying, hey, this guy came down, Agabus, he said there's going to be this great uh, severe famine, and he puts this little, uh, this, this little note that says this happened during the reign of Claudius. The Bible's true, friends. It really happened. Check the history. There was a famine that happened during the reign of Claudius. This is true stuff. So I just find that to be a little bit you know, humorous to me today. Seek the historical record. It happened. Real people, real places. But verse 29, the disciples, they hear this, this word from this prophet, the disciples, as each one was able, decided, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. So Antioch, which is a larger, richer city with more resources, finds out that their brothers and sisters in Judea need help. So they come together and decide to bless them. Kind of ironic, isn't it? Jews didn't even want to evangelize there, and yet the Antioch Christians end up helping them in a big way. What a great lesson for us today. Verse 30, they did this. They sent their gifts by the elders, by Barnabas and by Saul. Later on in Acts 13, what do we see? They send out Paul and Barnabas, and when they send, uh, and, and uh, then they send it out to others, and this church becomes the mission pad, launching pad, where the city itself is transformed, and then it grows, and it grows, and it grows. Again, there's just irony laced throughout this whole thing. Here's this church started by a bunch of people that have been, been kicked out because of persecution, Instead of just talking to people that look and act and are, are like them, they reach the people that need Jesus. Church is built up. They now have some resources, and they say, you know what? Uh, there's this famine coming. They're going to be needier than, our, than we are. We're going to send some money back to them. People who really didn't even want to talk to us. That's how God works. God redeems things. Even in the midst of our stubbornness, our short-sightedness, and our desire to kind of put God in a box or do things that are comfortable with us, God is bigger than that. He can use persecution to be able to advance his kingdom. And so we see here two things that stick out to me. One, they were generous with their possessions and their money, their resources. We just spent nine weeks, of, you know, a couple months ago looking at what it looks like to be generous. What sticks out to me here is they gave according to their ability. God didn't call them to, call, you know, give something they didn't have. Differing abilities, different jobs, different resources, but they gave what they had based on what God had given them. So there was a, a level of proportional giving here. They were generous based on what they had, but it's still a sacrifice. 
right, to give to people who you're not even sure you like at this point. Um, but they gave to them, right, according to their ability. They were also intentional and proactive in their willingness to give. They gave willingly. They weren't coerced. I, I, I love how, how the scripture says that they heard about the need coming and they decided, you know what, let's take up a collection and give. No one forced them. Barnabas and Saul didn't make them, but they trusted those guys and they gave that money to be sent out. So the first thing there is in terms of, our give, of ordinary giving is that we're generous with our stuff. Secondly, I see here that they were glad to send their out their best people to impact the world. I've already mentioned it a few times, Antioch became this launching pad for missions and the spread of missions all over the world. Kind of a reluctant church, if we're honest, right? Started by those who've been persecuted, reaching people that nobody wanted to talk to, now becomes a launching pad. It becomes a place that Saul and Barnabas spend a year helping to disciple and raise up people and then they send Paul and Barnabas back to the church in Jerusalem with their money to be able to bless that church, and then they begin to send out their best people over and over and over again. It strikes me kind of in an impactful way because our tendency, if we're honest, is to want to hold on to our stuff. I want to hold on to my resources because I might need them. I want to use them for, for my church. We've got stuff that needs to be done here. Or uh, let's use Indian Creek again in our context today. Well, we don't want to send out that person like they're one of our best. We need them here. We need them to, to do the ministry right here. We don't want to equip them and then send them out because then what will we do here? Then yet what we see here in Antioch is they were willing to train up, disciple, and then send out. And they were joyful and they were glad to send out their best people. And I find that to be a great challenge to me because often I want to hold on to my stuff. I want to hold on to my best people. I don't want to send them. I don't want to, I don't want to risk. You know, God, take somebody else, but not my children. Not my spouse. Can't somebody else go, but not me. Not that person. We need them here. We begin to see that God's calling us to be generous. So are we ordinary in all the best ways? Probably not a term you're going to typically hear preaching a passage like this is, hey, go out and be ordinary, but that's exactly what I want you to hear. Because ordinary is the standard. To be an ordinary Christian is to be like Jesus. So are we ordinary Christians here at Indian Creek? And by ordinary, are we people who are ordinary? Are we leaders who are ordinary? Are we givers who are ordinary? Are we obedient to God's mission? Are we occupied, are we obedient to, to God? Are we occupied with his mission? Are we open-hearted in our witness and our relationships? Are we developing and growing leaders who are exhorters and encouragers, explorers and not ego-driven? And are we a body of believers that are ordinary in our given, giving, meaning that we are generous with our stuff and we're glad to send people out? Are we ordinary Christians? Because ordinary Christians look like Jesus. Jesus was pretty ordinary when he came. He was. Now, we know with hindsight that it was pretty extraordinary what he was doing. But when he came, he came to reach people that weren't like everybody else. He looked for the outsiders and the outcasts. He didn't do anything crazy, crazy like we would look at in the world today. He didn't try to, try to create all these different campuses and multi-sites and crusades. He just loved people where they were. So to me, being ordinary, an ordinary Christian, is trying to look and act like Jesus. Not to be more than he was, not to be less than he was, not to be anything else except what God calls us to, 
to be missional in reaching those that God has called us to. You know, I find it interesting, the, the Antioch believers were the first ones to be called Christians. I, I don't think this was an accident that these disciples were the first ones to be called Christians. I think it might have had something to do with the fact that they were the first ones to really look and act like Jesus. They were the first ones to really start to embody the teachings of Jesus. They grabbed hold of the mission of God in a way that the Jewish believers and leaders in Jerusalem had not yet experienced. They went beyond that. That's another thing to me to even today is, as leaders, are we pushing our people to go beyond us? That's my hope for my children. I want my children to look more like Jesus than I do. Through my failings and failures and areas of, 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 of success, I want them to grow so that they take that next step so they're a little bit more like Jesus. Are we pushing people to take steps that maybe we didn't for, for, for all kinds of reasons, but we're trying to push people to say, hey, there's more. These were ordinary people, leaders, and givers who believed that Jesus was God's son sent to provide salvation to any and all who would repent and call on his name. Regardless of race, regardless of culture, regardless of economic status and religion. Can this be said of our church here today? May God allow Indian Creek Campus to be a church that is passionate about reaching ordinary people because it's full of ordinary people who have been transformed by the extraordinary work of Jesus.